recording here a special episode of the Cosmic Tape Music Club podcast. Um, we're doing an interview today with uh, Mike Hovancek, and um, I am Augustus. <laughs> and I'm Jacqueline. This and is our very first. You are the Galaxy Electric. <laughs> I know we must say that. <laughs> we must identify ourselves. Um, yeah, this is our first time doing an interview like this and doing this sort of special episode for the podcast. So thank you for being our inaugural guest. Oh, I'm happy to do it. So I guess uh, I am excited because we actually met through the club, the private Facebook group. Right. Yeah. And I have been you know, continually amazed with the people we've met through that group. Mm -hmm. We started it as like, oh, here's a little secret club. We'll start for ourselves and five friends. And then, you know, every time the door opens, someone walks in, we're like, oh, wow. Okay, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's grow the group here. This is great. Mm -hmm. And sure. you made some comments because we started posting about Halim El Dab. Yes. Who we covered um, for our podcast this month. And mentioned that you had worked with him. So I am just thrilled that we got connected like this and that, you know, you've heard the podcast episode and, you know, helped steer us in the right direction about some, some information and some articles. So thank you so, so much for, you know, making yourself known in the group. Oh yeah. It was, um, you know, it's funny how the, the, the nature of the internet is, when you're doing something that is sort of esoteric and you share it, sometimes you find your tribe and there's often scattered all over the place. And then you find these funny little connect the dot moments where people are talking about a thing I was involved with. And um, that's really, um, it's life affirming to know that other people are interested in these things. Yeah, we feel the same way. Definitely. The, the podcast and the group has brought that out more than anything mm -hmm. oh. let's get started um and talk a little bit about um you and uh your experience with um music and how you uh came to know halim and sure. yeah well as a as a maybe 11 year old i started uh, i was really fascinated with just sound and I came across some old broken audio equipment, a reel-to-reel re -reel and a cassette machine and things. And I started rewiring them and putting switches and knobs and buttons to create some uh, effects and things. And hooking them together so you would drop a sound in one machine and the other machine would hear it and repeat it a second later and speed up and slowing down. And it on and off switches on different things so I could shut, turn things on and off while it's in process. And so I was doing a lot of that and I was playing uh, guitars in unusual tunings and using extended techniques like jamming a chopstick between the strings and you get that chimey bell sound and then running that through this, this all this machinery I developed. So I was, as a kid, I thought I was the only one in the world doing that. And I actually didn't, it was a secret. So I thought people would just think I was crazy or something. So I did that. And, uh, and then after years of that, I came across the Columbia, Columbia Princeton Electronic Music Masters record. And uh, it blew my mind because I realized these are my people. 
And uh, I would, and they did it in a far more meticulous way. You know, you could tell they graphed out and every little sound, every, it was like a molecular level and how they piece together these tiny bits and slowly assemble them. So that amazed me. But then I got to Halim El Dobbs track, Lila and the Poet. Mm-hmm. And it was this insane fever dream of chanting and drumming and lutes and speeded up and slowed down voices and flutes, other, you know, flutes looping or doing all kinds of things. Um, space echo. It was, and it was just like this completely unheard of kind of thing. And I remember, I didn't, I couldn't find any other information on Halim. Mm. So I thought at the time, um, you know, he was, he must be some kind of mystical figure. I pictured this guy in Egypt in some kind of castle making (laughs) electronic music with, you know, unheard of, you know, like, like looking at the set of some, 1950s sci-fi movie you know blinking lights and knobs everywhere i kind of that's that's sort of the image i held then when i was at kent state um i was um in a music class and in the middle of the class this guy bursts into the room with a talking drum and he's beating on the drum and like yelling these nonsense syllables and running around the room. And then he, and he had like brightly colored African clothes and his hair was all curly and going in every direction. And his eyes were totally lit up. uh, Like he was in a, some kind of crazed state. And then he rushed out of the room and the professor said, well, students, you've just met Halim El Dab. (laughs) And I thought, that's wild because that's the same name as that Egyptian electronic music guy. And uh, like so I asked her out. Right? Yes, I, I, I was. I never stopped thinking about this amazing guy I discovered years earlier. So I, I started going to recital halls and seeing premieres of his work and things. And I finally took him aside and asked him about his electronic work. And he said, "You can have it all. It's just all in a closet." Oh, I, I said, heard this story, so this is good. We're getting to corroborate. Oh, you heard the story about his office? It's a, I think it's a so, story. but I want to hear like the real, you know, the real details. Okay, yeah, I'll try not to belabor this too much because <laughs> I could go on for hours about about this stuff. Um, so, Halim, I said I don't want to take ownership of your of your historic recordings. Those are yours, but I'd like to restore them and release them so people could hear what you've done. In the world, there's no way to hear your stuff except that one piece on the Columbia Records album. So we set a day, and I went to his office, and it's in this big, stately, carved stone building with big pillars. And I'm walking to this building, and there's Halim standing in the entryway playing a, an invocation for me on the flute welcoming me <laughs> trying to draw me into the into the uh, his his space so i go into this is big it looks like a museum this is it's all echoey stone this whole this the entryway of this building but then you turn the corner the first office you see when you turn to the left is all masked carved masks and instruments and scores scattered everywhere and random things all over and uh just like the most there isn't even a word you need like to use astronomical terms to find a way to describe how insanely cluttered this office was and it wasn't just a lot of stuff but it was like like one time i picked up a reel-to-reel tape and it was a recording of 
um, a weather report that like an unreleased recording, and it had a note on it saying, "Halim, please check this out," but then said it back to us, and uh, and it was dated like 1972. And I said, <laughs> "You got you got to like return this stuff." So he just he had uncashed checks oh, uh, scattered around. Just so when he took me to the closet where the real to real stuff was. He literally had things like a cigar box with just a nest of unspooled uh, tape, real real tapes, things like that. So I spent a year uh, restoring all of that with him. And I did the restoring, and I, I was trying to use him as a historian to tell me what the pieces were, because nothing was cataloged or labeled. Right. And he mostly just enjoyed hanging out. <laughs> I did a, a, all the restoring. Um yeah. But it took a year, so I, I restored all of all of that. And so the crossing into electric magnetic uh, re- release is is what I pulled together, and some of it, the the one called Lila Visitations, was literally many many scraps that I pulled together and put in a sequence that made sense. And um, Halim was just he's so about he was so about creating new things that he was really indifferent to the archaeology of digging through his old things. Wow. So, so you really produced those projects then. Yeah. I mean, there were things that were, you know, missing sections, a little oxide on the tape or where they were, they were water damaged. And so it was serious work and then assembling them into something that made sense. Uh, a lot of the pieces were half hour long and things as well. So I had to figure out how do I have on one disc, a good sampling of, most of what he did electron with the electronic music so i had to choose excerpts of some things so that was an adventure wow you kind of hit on a couple of things i was thinking about at the time that you put this together what would it have been like to be a halim al dab fan right looking for his music yeah would there have been just that one track on that one rare album yes yes beginning there and then you think like boy can't get wilder than that and then you find right. more and more, and more. <laughs> and he, just the he was so open to he had he had one it was a recording where he took his son who was like three years old to a cathedral somewhere in europe and recorded the sound of the cathedral and you can hear his little kid you know how kids that age they yeah. want to talk to you all the time so he's trying to record and you hear the little kid and you hear him going like Shh, Shh. and i put a little excerpt of that on it well funny the... he had things like that or he had one of the sound sculptures that he had, is in there pirouette is the name of that one mm-hmm. hmm. and so you were able to put together this uh album which is called crossing into the electric magnetic yeah you you worked with Halim on it, but it sounds like you really were the one, you know, putting this together. Uh, how much input did he have in terms of, you know, what sections of pieces you used and, you know, the name of the album itself and everything like that? He did come up with the name and um, I thought it was wonderful because he has that. He had, I still talked to about him like he's still around. He had that tendency to, just come up with crazy wild random things and he came up with that title and um, people have since said i think he meant electromagnetic and i said i this that those were his words and i was thrilled the original 
cover when I first released it. I released it first on my own little label as a cassette release. And the original cover was one of his um, color scores where he would uh, take score paper and put blobs of color and each color meant something different and he had different shapes. So I had that as the original cover of it. So all his stuff was, he would just more about that. (laughs) Yeah, he did. He did whole pieces that were color scores. So he was just, he was up for everything. The biggest thing though, if I had to summarize the biggest thing I got from Halim was that when I met him, I was 23 years old and he was just about to retire as a professor. And I thought, you know, he'd won Fulbrights and Guggenheims and his music's performed every day at the at the Giza pyramids in Egypt. And he's played with, uh, he's written things for Andrea Segovia. And I mean, just the guy's just, you know, he's done everything. He's worked with uh, major compose other major composers. So this incredible guy. And I thought I would sit at the feet of the master and try to learn things <laughs> as much as I could for a brief, you know, moment. But instead, he started asking me about my music. And at first I thought, well, that's polite of him. I'll give him a really quick, short little answer. But then he was fascinated by what I said and started asking more and more. And it ended up mostly us talking about my music. Wow. And at first I was thinking, what is going on here? Why, why would he want to know that? But that's the big lesson I learned. The reason the guy was such a genius was he, there's no end to learning. And there's no end to, for him, no end to enthusiasm. And so when I was telling him about, I was studying Chinese and Japanese traditional musics, and he was fascinated by that. And I was doing things with electroacoustics and, um, you know, conjoined string, homemade instruments. And he he was fascinated. So we ended, I ended up doing a lot of things with him. We, we performed many concerts. I produced some other bunch of other of his recordings, um, you know, chamber pieces and things, uh, improvisations and things. And uh, I co-produced his opera and did end up being involved in a lot of things with him. Wow. That seems to be the impression that I got from studying him was that, you know, he never stopped learning or teaching even beyond, you know, being at Kent State that he seemed to always be working with new people, young people with new ideas. And he did seem to have this infectious spirit about him that made you yes. want to like yeah, try something new. A lot of people know him because of the formal academic accolades. And that's great because he sure, he sure earned those. But um, a lot of people don't realize what a wild, even, you know, honestly, childlike guy. He was... A lot of my role was doing playing the adult, <laughs> even though I was 23. You know, like I would book a gig with the two of us, and then I would have to book the gig, negotiate the amount we're paid, um, schedule our rehearsals, and then we would talk about ideas, what pieces we might play, and I would write all these notes and come up with, pull together. He would go in all these directions, and it was like, scattered in every direction you couldn't it didn't make sense and i start pulling it together like what if you start in this key on that rhythm on the piano and i add this i come in with this and then when i do such and such i came up with all kinds of signals and things because they were they were kind of like uh improv with certain agreed upon little uh, parameters mm-hmm. sure and and even um you know one example is one time we were going to perform live on a radio program 
And, you know, I had all my notebook with all the pieces and who's doing what and what instruments to pack. And as we're packing, he, f- he picked up, I think it was like two pencils or something and said, hey, listen to this. <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's nice, but come on, we need to pack. And he goes, yeah, but don't you think we should use this? And I said, well, we've been rehearsing, though, very specific stuff. I don't know what we would do with that today. And he kept going, really? You don't think? I said, no, just no. So I, I so, you know, okay, he's like a little kid. Well, all right. And he sets it down. And then we get to the site and we're unpacking. And I look and there are those pencils. <laughs> he snuck them in one of the boxes. Yeah, so that's what he was like. Yeah, sure, we won't do that. <laughs> Sneak it. I love that so much. Thank you for telling that story. These are the kinds of things that like fill out, you know, the the whole picture for me. It's not just, mm-hmm. you know, when when were they born? What was the first thing they did? You know, these personal stories just like take it to another level for me. And, and I do think it's it it yeah. he brings that exact same nature to the music mm-hmm. that he always um he was that first recording session I ever did with him, he was supposed to be bringing these musicians in to play a chamber piece. And I'd I'd scheduled it and set it up. I actually chose the piece. I'd love to hear have a recording of that piece. He brings the musicians in and they go, okay, where's the score? And he went, I lost it. I don't know. (laughs) And so then I, he's like, Oh, I can recompose it. And I said, no, we're, we're set up now to record. So he said to the musicians play like a Renoir painting. (laughs) <laughs> and they were these are classically trained people they're freaking out they want to they want to score and he's and they said play like the mist over a river <laughs> and, and it was, that so that's, that's what he was like yeah but yeah really i mean that's you, i would i can work with that <laughs> he, right. that's probably why we played together so much because tell me that i i got it mist over river i, I can do that yeah. yeah, these classically trained people, man, it was might as well have been speaking to them in another language. They were freaking out. I can imagine that. Yeah, I mean, some people are impressed if you can, you know, play, you know, that esoteric jazz standard when you call the tune, you know, and other people yeah. are impressed when you can do Mist Over River. Yeah, I mean, that may have, could have been the, the name of a piece right there. Exactly. <laughs> what I would do sometimes is listen to them improvise and then say, okay. I liked this part and this part. Can you do a piece based on those two parts? And his eyes would light up and he'd go, that's fantastic. And then he would do something great. That was, uh, he needed someone who created the parameters often because he would just go in every direction. And and then when you say that was good, do it again. He's going to go somewhere else. He's not going to, he's not going to do it again. That to me sounds like, you know, he's this sort of gift to us that, you know, we don't want to contain, we don't want to, like, I'm so glad he wasn't like forced through like rigid systems and, you know, formal training in ways that would have taken away that curiosity. Like you were saying, it seems like you both had, you know, interest in experimenting with instruments in non-traditional ways, like plucking the strings in a different way or hooking it up to something else that, seems to be a pretty common theme for anyone who, you know, dabbled in the early electronic music world as well. And I I just find that interesting that, you know, even though you come from 
different parts of the world, different generations that you, you have that in common and then found each other later. That's so magical to me. (laughs) Yeah. it, It was especially amazing that it, it seemed like a magical thing that here's this guy who I imagined in some mysterious place and, um, uh, unreachable, unknowable. And then he becomes my friend for 30 years. And that was, uh, amazing, but it was also, um, interesting to watch what developed like he kept contacting me he would sometimes commit to some big grandiose thing and then realize it's impossible (laughs) and then he'd contact me and go you have to help me with this Uh, and i almost always did there's only one i remember where he said i have a symphony of a thousand drums that, that were performing in the streets in cleveland and I need you to work out all the technical. And I said, well, oh my God, that's really overwhelming, but I, I can try. When is it? And he said, tomorrow. No way. I, like, I, I said, you got to, <laughs> we've got to like, <laughs> I got to hear the piece and get out and try different equipment and figure out like, where can we get electricity in the street? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was the only time I said, I don't, I think it, I think it's too late <laughs> to do that. <laughs> wow. That's a real dreamer mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so beautiful things came from that and, and a lot of frustrating things. You know, if, if you really want to know the whole story, it was a lot of frustration too mm-hmm. uh, because of things like that, where he, there was the one most frustrating thing I remember was we during his 80th birthday concert, series of concerts that stretched over a year, mm-hmm. we were playing at Oberlin in their recital hall. It's just very, you know, renowned school and everything. And uh, so we're playing to all these like, composition students and professors, a serious, most educated audience, you know, you could find for music. And um, we took one of the Halim and Halim al and auto Luning pieces from, from uh, the crossing into electric magnetic. And we came up with an arrangement for it. And so we we're going to play it live. And Halim was playing theremin. <laughs> I had the idea, like, give the guy a theremin because he's so visual, and I know he'll just dance around it and make crazy faces and do something interesting. And I was playing the jung, which is a string instrument from China, and we had a guy playing oboe. So I thought if we come up with completely different instruments from the original, but then find a way to, you know, play the mel- the main melodies and improvise around it, that would be nice. So we did that, but um, at one point, when and that was that concert at Oberlin, um, we ha- I had come up with like s- signals of when to change to this part or that part. And I look and Kaleem and the other musician were just in this dreamy state, not even looking at me and just doing stuff that had nothing to do with the material we planned. And I thought, no, 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 you can't do this in front of an audience of composers. You can't just randomly honk and squeak your way through this so we had a really cool piece developed but you know that that was the kind of thing you, that could happen sometimes with Halim. he was just uh so untethered well i'm hard to t- turn off the honk and squeak yeah i like that yeah, that's really awesome <laughs> i like the idea too of like freaking out this specific group of people that would be expecting, you know, a certain oh, thing. Oh yeah, no, I, I mean, I, oh, yeah. I'm, I, you know, every crowd's different, but I, you know, I've definitely seen crowds of a similar what you describe, and you know, I could just imagine them, you know, being very upset in a very kind of funny way. <laughs> kind of reminds me yes, of that, yes. that that first what they consider like the first 
ele- like electronic or computer music concert. In yes. The- Hope people are outraged and disturbed. Very upset. Yes. Very disturbed. Right. Well, well, at that same night, there was somebody else premiered some really formal, serious music right before. And then the Halim concert started, so it was the same audience. And the previous guy got up and did the proper bow and all the right, standing in the right position. And Halim sat in the audience uh, for a lot of the performers performing his work. And then when it was done, he ran up, ran through the room with his arms in the air like a football player who just won, you know, just the star, uh, the winning touchdown. He's running around, you know, and he's wearing the dashiki and the necklaces and, you know, all this. And it was so funny to think, like, everything else that happens in that space is, like, people in suits and uh, speaking in very formal tones and all wearing, you know, like, black. And, you know, here he is, like, this exploding rainbow of energy running around with his arms in the air. And I remember one of the composers, uh, one of the professors, composition professors turned to me and said, he's a bit of a character, isn't he? I was like, you have no idea. (laughs) That was their formal way of saying what they really (laughs) wanted to say. They were a little freaked out. (laughs) Wow, I love that description of him, like an exploding rainbow. Is there a point at which Halim, you know, was using tape and then stopped using tape? Or is it, you know, with like with other instruments, things come in and out, they get used when they get used, whatever is the right thing for that project. Well, because of that, just flitting around in every direction, um, he, there was a point where he left, I think it was to do more uh, um, field recordings mm. of, uh, uh, I think that was the point where he went and studied with native american musicians so he walked away from this historic thing to go do something else and he never uh went back to tape music there was one point right around the time i was getting to know him where he did a piece with some synthesizer in it but the fascinating thing it kind of shows why he didn't continue doing that is when i would ask him i would when i was restoring the recordings from his electronic days i would say like how did you get that sound and he would give these magical, mystical bullshit answers. Like, <laughs> oh, you take the vibration and you stretch it and then you wiggle it until it turns colors. He would just say this total, it was total nonsense. And it, it, but his it, the lit up eyes, you know, he would just be in this like ecstatic state describing this thing that isn't a thing. <laughs> so like, there's no like... <laughs> He did it as if he physically grabbed the sound and like stretched it, twisted it around. And uh, and I realized after many times trying to get concrete answers, he just intuitively threw himself into all that and then forgot all about it, went on to other things. That uh, Yeah, now that you explain it that way and having that context, that does make more sense to me. It also explains kind of like the discography that I was exploring as well. Because there's yes. like piano music and there's, you know, obviously the collection that you put together that's electronic music. And if you try to search for more things like what you just heard, you're probably not going to find it. Yeah, he was a moving target. So uh, and it, people would often say, why don't you do more of this or that like you did five years ago? And um, there's, you know, there's no going back. He was constantly 
creating new things and exploring new things. Kind of reminds me of the story of uh, where Duke Ellington on his deathbed had, was surrounded by these get well cards and he started scrawling out notes, little snatches of melodies. Mm. It's like his final moments. He's like, but you know, it'd be good if you had a melody. And he's, he's right to the end. Um, still trying to compose. And Helene was like that. That's the impression that I got as well, that he was just still, you know, reaching for the next sound all the way. Yeah. Now you're located in Ohio. Yeah. Kent, Ohio. In still Kent. And so, you know, what, uh, if you can describe it, would you say Halim's uh, relationship with Kent? How how was that? Like, did he have a good relationship? Did he did he enjoy it? Did he have a lot of pride in living there because he lived there for quite a while? Yeah, decades. Uh, he he um, became a professor, uh, and he was teaching both. Uh, I, I he was teaching world music, but I think he was also teaching composition things that, for a while. And so he was in all the hit foot in all kinds of camps there. And um, on the one hand, he would just, everybody loved him and he won all these awards, you know, the top professor of the university and things. Oh. There was one time he won an award from the governor. He, um, he couldn't remember the governor's name. He was trying to thank him from the, the stage of this big recital <laughs> hall. And he couldn't remember. So he's kind of flubbing his way through because he doesn't care. It was some Republican, you know, backwards Republican, regressive, whatever. And uh, he got this big certificate, framed certificate. He was, oh, it was Voinovich. He said, thanks, Voinovich. You know, like he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't care about that. But, um, oh, man. So, yeah, I don't know how I got there. <laughs> Just the fact that oh, I think we were surprised to to find that he had stayed in Ohio for so many years yeah. that he had ended up there after all the things he had done out of all of his world travels. And, and yeah. Oh yeah. Well, he settled down and had a family in the area. So I think that had a lot to do with it, but he definitely was revered and loved by many. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of um, administration people who also had their troubles with him. Uh, when I produced, I co-produced his opera called Opera Flies mm, yeah. in 1995. Mm -hmm. And um, he just got this idea, hey, let's do, I'm going to, I want this opera to be done. And, um, and he came to me, can you make this happen? So it turns out, you know, you've got to reserve the the recital that particular recital hall you got to reserve it way ahead of time and you've got to we were he wanted to involve theater choir orchestra you know different all these different elements and i made it worse by adding in filling the hall with sculptures and art and and having drummers who would play at the end all these things i brought in and on top of that oh, proje I had projections of video of art and video i made that went through it. So this was super over the top thing. But as we were putting it together, the school of music seized money. We did a series of concerts leading up to the really big giant gala performance. And we were, I was saying, we'll do these and collect the door money. And then that will be our, how we'll help fund the big opera. And the school kept all the money that we raised from the other concerts. Mm. And, um, and then the theater, the woman who ran the theater department didn't want us to have the theater and 
she and she fought us on it and then we got the president of the university to give us permission to use the theater and so then the, the theater director said well okay but you can't use my electricity so we had to run cables in from another department it was just like everybody so many people were, then they had an electrician they hired to follow us around and confiscate equipment and things it was just it was so embattled Wow. And uh, it was just it was so I was going on four hours sleep a night for like nine months putting this thing together. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was super stressful. But it it showed me how people would be like, we love Halim. And then you then you commit to something and people are like, nope, you can't use a theater. No, you can't do this. No, you can't. We're going to find we're going to tear down all your posters. And uh, so I could see there was an element that didn't like the exploding rainbow of enthusiasm. <laughs> it's very impressive that he, you know, stayed there for so long and, you know, built that community. And I feel like that's part of his story too, that if we just celebrate the whimsy and, and genius, you're, you might miss that there were, you know, people who were undermining him. And uh, I remember one time when we were working on the opera, we had to, there was a department that was across the hall from his office and they said, you have to come and, and work this or that out with us first. We won't let you proceed unless you do this thing. So he, they, but then they wouldn't meet with him. So he, they, they finally said, fax it to us, fax a, a proposal to us. So he said, we're faxing across the hall <laughs> from his office to theirs. I mean, it, <laughs> it literally is transmitting like 20 feet. And that's, you know, and he said to me, when people sit at a desk all day, sometimes they become a chair. Hmm. Ooh! Wow! And that's that was his response to the fax request. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I feel like a chair these days. <laughs> wow! What are you <laughs> working on? Because <laughs> yeah, well, I I, ch- I released a um, CD very recently um, that uh, is is with um, El Haji Sora from Dakar, Senegal. And the way that came about was he, um, you know, on, on the social media, you, you see posts by friends and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends. Somewhere in there, his world and mine overlapped because I've worked with people from Burkina Faso and Kenya and things. So he, um, El Haji Sora, contacted me and he said, um, I would uh, like to work with you. So I went on his feed and looked at and listened to his music and said, yeah, let's do it. So he plays the Cora, which is a huge gourd with a big wooden neck and then a ton of strings on it. And he's just, he's, he's from a family of masters of the instrument. Um, people in his family worked with like Paul Simon and Philip Glass and things. So he's a, he's really amazing. And so I, um, so we did a piece because of COVID and on the long distance and everything. We did it online. He sent me something and I added stuff. And, and we did a piece and I went, well, that was fun. And I shelved it and didn't think more about it. And then months later, I pulled that piece out and I said, and I contacted him and said, you know, this is actually really good. So he, um, he said, let's do an album. And I said, well, uh, we'll see if we can come up enough for an album. So we, started tossing things around and it created this frenzied pace. And in about two weeks, we made it the whole album. Oh, I didn't so, know. um, so that, 
the, uh, and it's called Beyond Geography. And it came about because um, I found that like I would work on, say, laying down some drums or something and then get up in the morning and mix it down and send it to him. And then uh, I'd come home from work at lunchtime and he'd have sent me back his response. And I would go, great, what title do you want? Sometimes he'd say, you title it. Or he'd say, here, how about this? You know, and he, sometimes he would tell me some some interesting, like, Badakola Daha, which means a success after a hard time, which sort of describes trying to emerge from the uh, pandemic, you know, things like that. So, and then sometimes I'd come up with titles, or I'd come up with a title and say, can you translate it into your language? Let's see how that sounds. So there's one piece called Frog Pond that I said, can you translate that? Frog Pond is a little too plain. And so he said in his language, it'd be Toto Kilo. So that's, it's got these frog boinging kinds of um, plucked gourd kalimba and things in it. Oh, yeah. So that's the most recent release. I'm working, I've already, kind of like Halim, I'm constantly jumping into the next thing. So I've already moved. I actually have notes here in case I forget <laughs> the titles of the of, of that album because I'm already th- totally focused on a bunch of new things I have in the works. Totally understand. Yeah, we can relate. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a bewildering thing. I mean, people will sometimes ask me a specific question about some release I put out a few months ago, and I literally don't remember the answer. I'm not sure. What, <laughs> although I have to go back and listen to that one. I don't know. Staying in that creative flow. Yeah, and I, I hate to just throw throw that flow away. So I think that's what Helene was doing when he would, when like he, like when we did that opera, he had he kept losing the score, and every performance he would rewrite parts of it. So we had little scraps of scores and recordings of perform, and we had to pull all that together into one coherent score, and it took months. Wow! And uh, but it was because he would just say, "I can't find it. Let me just write something." And so it was, there were, there were kind of just scraps all scattered all over and we were able, and most, some of them were just missing and he had to come up with stuff. So there's never really one true version of anything he's working on. Absolutely. And, and so I find that too, that like people will contact me and say, I love that thing you did in 1991. <laughs> And I'm like, I don't even know if I have a copy of that. I don't, you'll have to refresh my memory. But that's what Helene was saying to me when we were restoring his electronic things. I would say, what is this piece? This is amazing. And he would say, uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for having the wherewithal all to do that. and to persevere and to make sure you know especially now getting a taste you know for how you know it might have been to conjure that into fruition yeah the amount of work that was (laughs) and to overcome sort of the chaos of everything so that we can all enjoy you know yeah it is on heavy repeat heavy rotation (laughs) at our household right now and will be probably awesome. for you know till the end of time <laughs> yeah um because it's, it's not something that i tire of that's for sure it's so good <laughs> oh awesome well you know there was one right at the end of restoring all of that there were little there were two little scraps left that you know they were from two different eras of his electronic work and were, they were just scraps 
And I said, why don't we put one scrap on one reel-to-reel, one scrap on the other, and we'll just jam. And so we're hand-turning them and um, and looking at each other and, and trying to manipulate the tapes and, and just in real time. And I uh, came up with a piece called Three Time Frames, uh, which is, you could find it on YouTube. And um, we because of that piece, we got thrown out of the... Um, media center <laughs> they, they said you can't handle reel to reels like that and they kicked us out and, <gasps> they um, didn't know who they were talking to oh, isn't that amazing what it is... was like some 20 year old um you know <laughs> manager of you know the department or something one of the things i was gonna ask is you know did you have to borrow machines you know how did you what, what kind of equipment did you use to to archive yeah yeah, we used um, a reel-to-reel that was in the media center at Kent State. And um, he'd originally recorded on a, a lot of it on a Wallen sack, which is like a suitcase-sized reel-to-reel. Right. Um, but we couldn't find a, a one that was still working. Um, he got them because he said, you know, you can drop this in the sand. <laughs> you can, right. you know, leave it outside by accident and it still works. <laughs> But after decades, many decades, they, they eventually, it was hard to find a working one. So we ended up going to the school to transfer things. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the place where you can find that kind of machinery and where the, all, a lot of the archival work is being done. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really do feel like we could talk for, you know, like a whole weekend about all (laughs) Well, maybe we'll do that sometime, hang out and talk. Have a little Cosmic Tape Music Club weekend hang. Yeah. (laughs) Or maybe we could jam with you. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. <laughs> I just I like yeah. I wanted to let that, let that be a long down. pause. Like I was gonna just let that hang out. <laughs> I know that sounds good to me. And like I collaborate all the time with people. I just imagined us collaborating with like you know some Bukla stuff and doing some improv and like that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, 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 I do entirely acoustic work now. For decades now, I've done all acoustic things. But here and there, I'll collaborate with people who um, can do stuff. One dream I've had for a long time is to set up a bunch of acoustic instruments in the middle of a the- of a stage and then have an electronic person on one side of me and one on the other. And they're sampling me and then chopping and looping and speeding up and slowing down. So I'd be playing my thing, oh, but there'd be this all this sonic shrubbery of what they're doing with it. And uh, I want to do that like in a, in some kind of museum or something someday. Yes, we want to see that. We'd also like to do that. That sounds exactly like the kinds of things we're always talking about. I, I like, literally I like know the module like that I would use to do that with, <laughs> like, or the series of modules. Yeah. But like, yeah, I definitely have that ammo available if you're looking for that wow well i hope this isn't the last time we chat and thank you so much for joining us on our very first you know mini pod episode for the cosmic tape music club podcast yeah thanks for being our guinea pig (laughs) thank you so much for your time we'll you know see you in the group and hopefully chat some more 